Hey everyone, this is Mike DeBliss. This is the third and final part of the podcast for nuts and bolts of internet copyright law. In this episode, we're going to talk about what you can do to reduce the risk of your content being stolen so that you position yourself in the safest place possible. So the best thing is uh, to learn how to use the DMCA offensively by understanding the takedown notice process. There's really no way to get around that. Um, Quoting one of the football legends, the best defense is a good offense. So we've already discussed the elements of the DMCA takedown process. Um, If you would like to see some samples, you can simply do a Google search for takedown notice and a number of samples will, um, will result in your Google browser. Now, I'd like to digress for a second to talk about a really cool case involving a cable provider that um, thumbed their nose in the face of regulators. And the reason why I want to bring this case up is because it emphasizes um, how strict and heavy-handed the penalties of the DMCA are and how um, the DMCA really does have a content creator's back um, as long as they are fully in compliance with the uh, with the procedures of uh, the DMCA, so this case involved a cable provider by the name of Cox, um, and they're located in the West Coast. Uh, some of you may not be familiar with them. Um, they're located in California, parts of California, I should say, as well as uh, Oregon. And uh, they, uh, their main competitor, my understanding, is AT&T. But be that as it may, uh, Cox received DMCA complaints from big content creators in the music and movie industries. The producers alleged that Cox was posting their content without permission and that Cox had to comply with the DMCA and remove the content at once. Now, Cox did respond and they responded by canceling the accounts of repeat infringers consistent with their uh, compliance, DMCA compliance procedures. However, one of the music producers discovered that these repeat infringers that had been removed from the internet were getting back online. And so what they did was they sued Cox. And as is standard, in the uh, in litigation, there is a process called discovery, and discovery is just a fancy way of saying that the parties exchange information and documents that could potentially be used later on at trial. The idea is that um, you know that these documents, anything that's relevant to the litigation or the dispute, has to be turned over to the other party. And so um, Cox was under the obligation of the civil discovery uh, rules of procedure, and they complied by um, exchanging information that they had that was relevant to the dispute that these, um, uh, that these movie producers had. During the discovery process, a smoking gun email was discovered, and it was an email that was sent from a manager at Cox to the sales staff. 
In some in substance, it said, quote, cancel the accounts of repeat offenders. However, after a certain number of days, you may contact the repeat offenders and sign them back up again. As you can imagine, um, that uh, was enough to sink Cox's uh, ship and enough to put them on the, uh, on the line for a huge uh, judgment. It's my understanding that they, uh, Cox, um, that is, got hammered with a $25 million judgment. Now, you know, $25 million sounds uh, like a lot of money to uh, small guys and small businesses. However, uh, with a big cable behemoth like Cox, that is really a drop in the bucket. So that's why um, sometimes you have these big cable providers that throw caution to the wind and, um, you know, refuse to, um, you know, do things that they're supposed to do. In this case, it was very underhanded and it was um, very, um, very tricky and full of deceit because Cox did, in fact, remove these repeat offenders um, only to sign them up again. And so there was uh, definitely an intentional and willful uh, willfulness to their behavior, and uh, that contributed to the um, large judgment. Now, there are some websites like YouTube that have streamlined the process um, for copyright infringement, and what they've done is they have um, their own copyright infringement forms that you can fill out online. Again, you're dealing with a um, you know, a behemoth in, you know, in the, in YouTube. And, um, you have to realize that, uh, your expectations may not be met at all. Um, you know, let alone in a reasonable amount of time. So, um, you still should follow the procedures that the website has set up. And if it's streamlined, like in the case of YouTube, where they have their own copyright infringement form, fill that form out and submit it. Now, the second um, piece of advice I have is that you want to protect yourself from a copyright infringement claim. So, whereas before we were talking about how to use a DMCA offensively uh, by understanding the takedown notice process, you also want to understand how to protect yourself from any copyright infringement claim that is filed by a, another party. So very basic, this is very basic cookie cutter information. Don't use copyrighted content on your website. Um, it, it happens time and time again um, because there are images that um, are, you know, uh, float around freely online and that um, sometimes can be copied. Um, in less than seconds and then repost it. So this um, temptation causes a lot of um, small companies, mid-sized companies to um, you know flirt with disaster. And you don't want to ever become a target of a copyright infringement claim or even have to deal with the um, uncomfortable, um, nature of receiving a cease and desist letter. So be, be always on uh, heightened alert and um, always 
always, uh, you know, always be cautious and apprehensive about uh, doing something about a knee-jerk response to something and, um, you know, taking something that doesn't belong to you. Uh, it's far better to sign up for, uh, for images on a website um, that basically has a monthly fee attached to it than it is to find an image that you like online and simply you know, uh, copy it and uh, put it in one of your blog posts. Uh, again, uh, you're asking for trouble. Now, by far, the most surprising development in the DMCA space these days is that it applies to comments posted on a website. So, if you have a very a vocal audience uh, of your blog or of your podcast and um, people are quick to post comments, you need to be careful because if one of the users to your site who's posting comments um, inadvertently or intentionally uh, posts some copyrighted material in the comment section, you potentially put yourself at risk for joint liability if you are not in strict compliance with the DMCA compliance process. So, very simply, if you allow users to post comments on your website, adhere to the strict DMCA compliance process to ensure immunity from claims. All right, and again, this is done out of an abundance of caution and, um, you know, out of the possibility that one of your users might infringe intentionally or inadvertently on a third party's copyright by posting unauthorized content in the comment section of your site. You want to protect yourself at all times. And I realize that this, you know, might put you on edge, but it's better to be safe than to be sorry. So take Facebook, for example. Suppose that a user posts a copyright image on their Facebook page. Under traditional copyright law, because it's on Facebook, Facebook could be jointly liable for damages for copyright infringement. However, under the DMCA, so long as Facebook strictly adheres to the DMCA compliance process, they are guaranteed absolute immunity under the safe harbor immunity provision. And that's found in Section 512C of the DMCA. You want to be positioned just like Facebook here. You want to have or enjoy the immunity um, and be cloaked in this safe harbor immunity provision as well. Well, in order to in order to uh, to enjoy that immunity, you have to uh, adhere to the DMCA compliance process. If you allow anyone to upload anything to your site, it goes without saying. Be in compliance with the DMCA. Now, I want to talk about one critical aspect of DMCA compliance that is essential and that can be done relatively easy and without um, much expense uh, whatsoever. This aspect requires registering an agent with the Copyright Office. Basically, an agent is the person who will receive copyright complaints arising out of content posted by users of your site. Everyone has one, from Google to Facebook to YouTube. 
The agent has to be registered with the Copyright Office. The U.S. Copyright Office has uh, finally upgraded its registration system and brought it into the 21st century. What I mean by that is, is that um, they launched an online DMCA agent registration system. You might laugh, but in, um, in earlier times, uh, one would actually have to download the paperwork uh, from the Internet and uh, literally fill it out by hand in ink and then mail it to the DMCA um, office. These days, there's an online DMCA agent registration system, and it's uh, very simple to use. Um, and the fee is a mere $6 for every three years. So on the registration form, um, what you would do is you would list the name of the agent. Now, so you know, um, the agent can be an independent agent or you as a site owner. So you don't have to necessarily resort to an independent agent if you are the site owner, so long as you understand that there are um, some issues that come up here. And you will see this as I list uh, the rest of the requirements that are necessary on the registration form. So the name of the agent or the site owner has to be placed on the registration form. The street address also has to be included on the registration form. No P.O. box is allowed. A phone number for the, uh, for the site, an email address for the site, and all of the site owner's online properties. Now, here's the rub. If you work from home and if you are uncomfortable providing your home address on the, uh, the, on the um, agent registration form, you can use a DMCA agent. That's one of the ways to um, uh, get away or circumvent the rule that um, you place your address on the form. Again, this is in the situation where you have a home business. Remember, no P.O. box is allowed. So in that case, you're basically put between a rock and a hard place. If you're working out of your home, you have no choice but to put your home address. And as one can imagine, um, having your home address published online for the entire world to see can be unnerving. So you might want to make use of a DMCA agent. This will provide some privacy as the agent's information will be listed in lieu of yours. However, the business address, um, the business address must still be listed. And if you keep a home address, again, you know, for the reasons we discussed, um, this can be unnerving. In limited circumstances, you can petition the Copyright Office and they may allow the site owner to substitute a P.O. box for his or her home address. So even if you have a DMCA agent, um, this does provide some privacy. However, the form does still require the business address. Um, so it doesn't necessarily solve the problem of privacy and, um, you know, keeping your home address, um, you know, private and um, not for the whole world to see online. 
But again, you can petition the Copyright Office in limited circumstances if you have a fear of uh, broadcasting your home address and uh, you're one of the um, you know, large number of small businesses that works out of the home. If you're not registered, I recommend doing so ASAP because if you think about it, this is your ticket for taking advantage of the safeguards embedded in the DMCA. As we discussed in one of the earlier episodes, there are very few laws, if any, that guarantee you absolute immunity from damages for liability in any area of business. And this is one of them. So it's like buying insurance at a at a mere cost of $6. I mean, I can't even think of another area of the law that affords um, you know, immunity from liability at such a low fee. And um, of course, compliance with the DMCA procedures is um, necessary. And this is one of them, registering the agent or registering yourself as a site owner. So uh, what I want to do to wrap this um, episode up is just recount the procedures that take place um, in the wake of an agent or you as a site owner receiving a takedown notice. Um, let's assume that the agent receives a takedown notice um, and they're an independent agent. One of two things happens. If they work for the site, they'll just remove the content. If they are an independent agent, they will contact the administrator of the site first to discuss the matter. So I misspoke before. Um, we're dealing with two different circumstances. One where um, the person works for the site and they just remove the content. The other where the other is where there is a third party or independent agent that is um, you know that you've hired and that is working on your behalf. They will usually contact um, you if you're the administrator of the site to first discuss the matter in the wake of receiving a takedown notice. Now, recall from our earlier podcasts that upon receipt of a copyright complaint, the content in question must immediately be removed. There is no discretion involved, no ifs, ands, or buts about it, no um, examining the content and um, using one's own discretion to see whether it is, you know, uh, completely copied or whether, you know, parts of it are unique to um, the person who's alleged to have taken it. The law says that it must be removed. And by removed, it doesn't mean that the entire website has to be removed. It means just the infringed upon content. Now, out of an abundance of caution, what most people do is take down the entire page where the infringed content lives um, to avoid any um, you know, repercussions instead of just removing that section on the page where the infringed content lies. They basically remove the page altogether. Now, some of the Goliaths uh, have resisted removing content. Uh, I gave you an example of one a little earlier. What happens if they resist removing the content? Well, they're not in compliance with the DMCA 
uh, procedures. And so essentially they waive the DMCA protections and the immunity that they would otherwise be entitled to. And again, uh, we talked about this, you know, $10 million, uh, while that sounds like a lot of money to, you know, people, to the average person, it's not a lot of money to a company like YouTube, Facebook, or Google. It's peanuts. Uh, this actually brings to mind a case um, from a while back where McDonald's was sued by a person who spilled McDonald's coffee in their lap um, as they were leaving the drive through And it was discovered during the discovery process that McDonald's had uh, made a calculated decision to uh, store their coffee at uh, or above, rather, um, a boiling temperature. Um, and they did that because after taking polls from um, potential, from customers, um, they realized that people wanted hot coffee. And they realized that people didn't chug their coffee down within the first 10 seconds of picking it up at the drive-thru. They drank their coffee over a period of time. And so if they served lukewarm coffee, the likelihood is that the coffee was going to be cold within five to 10 minutes after the customer purchased it. So what they did was they stored the coffee at a temperature that was scalding hot in order so that the person who, so that the customer 30 minutes or 45 minutes later still had hot coffee. Well, <laughs> this presented the um, problem that when a customer purchased the coffee and uh, started sipping it, they were sipping basically boiling hot water. And so this poor person who purchased the coffee and was sipping it and wound up spilling it and uh, spilled a scalding hot coffee on their lap and uh, suffered third-degree burns wasn't too happy. And as a result of the lawsuit, this all came out in the discovery process that McDonald's knew that by serving scalding hot coffee, they were presenting a risk of harm to customers. Yet, they did a balancing test and they realized that the benefits of keeping customers happy and um, serving them scalding hot coffee so that 30 minutes or 40 minutes later it would still be hot and people and customers wouldn't be infuriated by having to drink cold coffee or microwaving their coffee. They realized that this was, uh, that this outweighed the risk of uh, some poor person, uh, you know, dropping it um, or, uh, you know, on their lap and getting third degree burns. So there's always a risk assessment that's done and it's not just unique to the publishing industry. It happens in other industries as well, especially uh, food distribution and fast food. Now let's get back on track again. What happens after the DMC agent removes the content? Well, the agent sends a notice to the site owner who posted it. In sum and substance, the notice sounds something like this. We've received a takedown notice from ABC Record Producer Company. We've removed the content. If you want to file a counter notice, please let us know ASAP. You may want to consult with a lawyer. They usually add that in um, for uh, good measure. Now, what happens if the infringing party 
<clears throat> decides to file a counter notice. It doesn't happen often, but sometimes it does. And essentially, uh, by filing a counter notice, the infringing party is claiming that they have a right to the alleged infringed content. And when this happens, the DMC agent forwards the counter notice to the copyright holder who submitted the original complaint. And now the copyright holder has a strategic decision. They have to respond within 10 to 14 days after receiving the counter notice. All right. And so um, this piggybacks on the strategic decision that the copyright holder faces. So in the wake of receiving a counter notice, the copyright holder faces the decision of A, going through the expensive process of filing a copyright infringement case in federal court or dropping everything altogether. And I want to stress that filing a case in federal court is not um, cheap. It can go into the tens of thousands of dollars, and that is on the cheap and cheap. So this is why there is a strategic decision that the copyright holder faces. Um, again, it might come down to how badly the copyright holder, um, you know, uh, how how. Um, serious the infringement is or whether this is something that can simply be overlooked because now you have a recalcitrant uh, person who is fighting back and digging their heels in the sand and asserting um, a right to use the content. But on principle alone, some people may still uh, want to hold the copy, hold the copyright infringing parties feet to the fire and pursue the case. But again, buyer beware, this gets very, very expensive. To the extent that the copyright holder files an infringement case in federal court, they would file it against the person who posted the content, um, the site owner, um, the, the, site, the site owner who posted the content, and not the uh, host or uh, not the host because the host is protected. So the DMC guarantees immunity to the host. And so it's important to keep in mind this time frame that the copyright holder has upon receiving the counter notice. Um, he has to respond within 10 to 14 days after receiving the counter notice. And by response, what we're talking about here is filing a copyright infringement case in federal court. Otherwise, if the copyright holder ignores this um, time span and it lapses without a copyright infringement case being filed in federal court, the agent will likely just republish the content that was originally uh, taken down um, as a result of the takedown notice. Now, in closing, I'd like to offer a few tips for avoiding copyright issues. This goes without saying, create your own images or um, jump onto a website and purchase a subscription to one that um, allows you access to a gallery of images so that if you have a wildly popular blog, uh, you can use the images 
uh, because you now have the right to use them. You'll hold the copyright and you won't face any issues. Um, you want to contact the affiliate manager. So if you're promoting a product and you cannot get your own images, contact the manager running the program to ask for images. Stock photos. Um, again, there are so many stock photo websites online these days. Uh, you can literally um, shop around and find some very inexpensive stock photo sites that uh, may charge a monthly fee for use of a wide assortment of uh, stock photos. Be careful though because there are different licenses for different products um, or specific conditions. So this, these are some of the ways that you can avoid copyright issues and um, you know again the DMCA can be used offensively and at the same time you have to keep in mind the fact that it could be used against you and that you could be a target so the number one thing here is to educate yourself and be in the know so that you are um, you are knowledgeable on how to take advantage of the DMCA process if someone has uh, pirated your content and at the same time you're knowledgeable if you are served with a cease and desist letter or a takedown notice. If you have any further questions feel free to uh, hit me up anytime. Um, I'm based in New Jersey but um, I'm more than happy to speak to you know to speak to you regarding any issue and um, you know help uh, you navigate the shoppy um, seas of copyright law online.